Welcome to The Future of Antitrust, a series produced by BYU Law School's Global Business Law Program. Uh, my name is Clark Casey, and I'll be moderating this panel. Um, I'm a professor of law at BYU Law School. And before kicking things off, um, I'd just like to acknowledge BYU Law School and Amazon, uh, which, who both have provided funding for this webinar, which is part of a series of events that um, we're calling the future of antitrust um, that BYU Law School is putting on. So stay tuned uh, for additional upcoming events. Um, let me introduce our, our panelists, who I'm thrilled to have us join today. I think we're going to have a great discussion about this um, bill, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. Um, now, I'm not going to be able to do justice to their experiences in the short time I have to introduce them, but let me give you a brief snapshot of each of them. And I'm going to go in alphabetical order. Um, first off, we have Darren Bush, who is the Leonard B. Rosenberg College Professor of Law at the University of Houston Law Center. And Darren's uh, teaching and research is focused um, on antitrust issues. Um, and so I'm sure he's going to have a lot of great insights for us today um, on, this, on this topic of the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. Um, next, we have Katie McInnes, who is currently the Senior Public Policy Manager in the United States at DuckDuckGo and has also worked at Consumer Reports, um, the Center for Democracy and Technology, and the FCC. And Katie's experience in the industry impacted by this bill, um, I believe will be a great benefit to our discussion today as well. Um, next, we have Adam Kavakovich, He's the founder and CEO of the Chamber of Progress, a new center-left tech industry policy coalition promoting technology's progressive future. Um, the organization works to ensure that all Americans benefit from technological leaps. Um, and that the tech industry operates reasonably and fairly. So Adam's work is very much relevant to what we're going to discuss today, and I think he'll have a lot of great insights for us as well. And finally, we have Danny Sokol, Professor Danny Sokol, who's the Carolyn, Frank, <coughs> Carolyn Craig Franklin Chair in Law and Business USC, and he teaches in both um, the law school and the business school at USC. And Danny's written a ton of really interesting stuff by, uh, about antitrust law generally, including about this bill. So also looking forward to, to his contributions to today's discussion as well. Um, I'll note that, unfortunately, uh, Megan Hunter, who was previously um, scheduled to join us um, today, will not be able to join us um, as previously planned. OK, so let's get into the bill. Okay? And I want to start out with a, a little bit of context, okay? because this bill, so Senate Bill 2992, um, is just one of several current efforts um, that is uh, not only domestically, but internationally as well, um, meant to more uh, forcefully regulate um, what, we'll, what we'll call uh, big tech. So um, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, maybe, my, maybe Microsoft, and we'll get more into that definition here in a minute. So I wanted to ask the panelists, um, what is going on? Why is there this big push currently um, to, to regulate um, more forcefully uh, big tech? Does anyone want to take that on, kick us off? Yeah, I'll start. One, one hey. thing that's happened is that we've, we've seen people on both right and the left of the aisle say that we really need to rein in big tech. And they're responding to people's overwhelming concerns about the way that um, these technology companies have started to impact our lives and have, it have started to undermine some previously conceived freedoms and choices. Um, it's also kind of making sense as far as this media. We've had uh, over 30 years of the internet economy affecting the US and, and now it's time to regulate it. And the people are, are agreeing with uh, with the lawmakers on this. And survey after survey has shown overwhelmingly that the public does want the government to act on big tech and rein in some of the worst abuses, uh, not only to protect the kind of choices we have online, but also to protect our democracy and to protect the kind of freedoms that we have long seen is very close to our hearts as Americans. Thank you. Yeah, and, and one thing I'll note is uh, this bill is um, has bipartisan supports um, um, Klobuchar and Senator Grassley, Republican Democrat, are sort of the leads um, in, in moving this bill forward. Any of the other panelists want to jump in on that question? Thank you, Katie. Sure, I'll jump in. Um, first of all, uh, you know, my university requires me to say I, I don't speak for them. Um, and I can actually say I don't speak for anyone but myself. Um, 
But when you say that there's a sudden push to regulate big tech, I, I, I tend to take a historical perspective on that. Uh, when you think about you know, the the push to uh, um, against IBM in the in the 70s and the breakup of AT and T and its eventual um, getting back together uh, in, you know, in the 80s, uh, you think about the the F uh, the, the the DOJ and uh, and the discussions in the 90s about B 2 B platforms um, and. All, all of those, and of course, Microsoft in the late 90s, early 2000s, you think that maybe this isn't just a, an isolated incident where, the, where, the, uh, where people are concerned about big tech. Uh, it's part of a larger picture and, uh, and part of a, lot of a larger concern about dominance. So I don't view this as an isolated intrusion into into the uh, the tech platforms. I think this is this has been around a while in in terms of thinking, and and people may not like it, uh, and I know the companies do not like it, but uh, the 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 patterns of behavior that we're seeing in those companies is is something all too familiar in antitrust. Great. So, yeah, so Clark, you sorry. had asked kind of why, yeah, sorry, why, why this is happening now. And I think there's a, a kind of a confluence of a couple of things happening. First, I, I don't think there's any denying that particularly the big tech platforms have a lot of power. That's just undeniable. And frankly, I think, um, uh, you know, in their wiser, more candid moments, they, they acknowledge that truth because I think that is a truth. They're big, they're powerful. They have a lot of influence about over what people see and learn. And that's just, that's power that they, uh, I think everybody wants them to carry um, responsibly. From there, what you're seeing over the last couple of years is that various policy proposals in antitrust, but also in privacy and content moderation, they all sort of trickled down from what is really, I think, a shared bipartisan anxiety about the power of big tech. Um, I also think there's a couple things going on there as well. Um, First, you know, you have the sort of the rise of this neo-Brandeisian movement, progressive thinkers like Lena Khan of the FTC leading a new anti-monopoly movement. You're seeing um, smaller companies, Epic Games, Tile, Spotify, Yelp, uh, filing lawsuits, lobbying aggressively for, for action to, to guarantee their access to what, um, you know, it may be an important platform for them, Apple, uh, you know, uh, operating system. Uh, in the case of Apple or Google, search results in the case of Google, Amazon's marketplace for others. That might that affects their distribution costs or ability to reach reach people, and third, I think you've seen you know um, uh, foundations led by uh, folks like Pierre Omidyar, Chris Hughes, funding and amplifying um, some of this work as well. I do think though that there is um, an important distinction to make here, which is that when you ask people, do you have concern about big tech and ought they should they be more regulated? Generally, people say yes. That's that's generally you know every survey I said, including the surveys we've done, people say yes. But the details really matter, right? And so, for example, when it comes to this bill, once a poll that we uh, did last year described the impacts to uh, to everyday conveniences that people use, Amazon Prime, Amazon Basics, voter sentiment flipped from uh, support to oppose. And so I do think you know we're kind of entering the stage where the tech regulation conversation is moving from should we to how should we? And uh, let's have a you know, debate about the pros and cons of specific regulatory ideas rather than just ought, they, ought, ought big tech ought to be regulated because I think it ought to be. Okay, great. Thank you. So, um, I'll make a few observations. Uh, at a broad level, I agree with what everyone said. I'm gonna give my own spins. Before I do, uh, I do wanna disclose a few things. Number one, though I'm full-time at USC, uh, I am part-time at White and Case. Uh, we're there and at previously at, at, a, at a different law firm. I have represented big tech. I've represented companies against big tech. I've represented companies that are tech, but not technically under the definition of this bill, big tech. So the ones that aspire to be big tech, which is everyone who's not big tech, um, plus um, industry associations uh, as, as, as well. With, with that set of disclosures, so I'll say that there's, there's three big currents. How did we get here? Number one, um, anytime we're in a period of industrial transformations, so we're part of yet another industrial revolution, 
there's a lot of anxiety because of technology uh, changing the way people run their lives. And, and we've seen this iteration after iteration um, before, only because the, the Queen of England happened to have her jubilee. I, I thought about the prior Queen of England who had, who was the most longstanding Queen Victoria. It's in that period of massive industrialization uh, and displacement of workers from traditional industries. We saw the rise, for example, of the science fiction literature and a lot of the kind of anxiety that we saw in, in the writing of, of the, the great science fiction writers at the time. We, we see similar type anxiety for a lot of what Katie suggested about uh, broader concerns. So there are broader concerns that are not about antitrust. They may be adjacent to antitrust, but it's not antitrust. So I care about deep fakes in elections. So one thing that it seems to be the case, it seems still that the evidence suggests that Russia intervened at least with regards to the Brexit vote. It seems to be the case that there are real concerns about uh, legitimacy of elections around the world. Those are very, very real concerns. These are not antitrust concerns, but they're antitrust adjacent. We have real concerns about what does privacy mean um, these, again, are very real concerns. They're adjacent to antitrust, but they're not antitrust. Then we have some of the concerns that Darren raised. Darren talked about actual antitrust enforcement cases based on actual market power. Then we have you know, what this specific bill looks like. And this is where I sort of tease out what Adam meant, which is it sort of depends what we mean. So we should all be concerned about the unlawful exercise of monopoly power. We could say that, at least at DOJ, there really wasn't much uh, Section 2 enforcement in, in recent decades. And we've seen case law shift, um, in some ways correcting for bad earlier case law, in some ways moving too far. I, I think that's a that's the majority position, and that's before we get to populists of either the left or the right. We have this bizarre uh, Baptist bootlegger uh, coalition of, of people on the far right and far left so on every other issue hating each other, but on this issue sort of coming together in ways that seem very weird. Um, uh, but there's, there's something else, which is a frustration that somehow antitrust isn't solving problems. Now, are they antitrust problems? Are they broader problems? This is where the devil is in the details. Um, so how did we get here? There's an overall frustration. Um, it could be either we don't have the right tools for antitrust, we don't have the right resources for antitrust, or simply, in the case of the populists of both sides of the political spectrum, we want certain outcomes, and what matters is the outcome more than anything else. And it's just a tough time. So here's what I would say broadly, not just in the US, but around the world, the center's collapsing politically everywhere. Um, and when the center collapses and people coalesce on extremes, we also get much more heated discussion. This had been a fairly technocratic area full of nerds, right? As sexy as the Surface Transportation Board we're not in that world anymore. All of a sudden, everyone is an antitrust expert, sometimes a self-proclaimed expert, but this is the world we live in. But everyone, for the first time, actually cares about what I do. I, I liked it better when I was as boring as the person who did work in front of the Surface Transportation Board. But this gets to, you know, broader, you know, really difficult policy questions that I think are broadly about competition policy. So this is called an antitrust bill, but it's actually, in my sense, many of these bills, in fact, they're not antitrust as we know, antitrust law. This is sort of quasi-regulatory, which I think we see real regulation elsewhere in the world. And that sort of is the world we're in right now, sort of what does antitrust mean is up for grabs. And I think that's where we are. And this is just mm -hmm. one of a number of manifestations of where, where do we where do we move? Thank you, Danny, and thank you all of you for your thoughts on that. So, so it sounds like I mean we're we're uh, we're in agreement that there is this sort of um, sort of societal sentiment that you know these these tech companies they have a lot of power, um, which which can manifest itself in a lot of ways that um, 
you know, some people like, some people don't like. Um, and, and let's get into the sort of boring stuff, as, as Danny might put it, um, or the, the, the devil in the details um, of this bill. Um, because this bill is sort of re responding to the sentiment that all of you have so well um, articulated. Um, and so I'm just going to read from my notes because I want to make sure I get this right um, in terms of who this bill uh, targets or, or covers. Okay, So covered platforms um, are those with a lot of monthly users, um, either 50 million per month or 100,000 business users. Annual market cap or net sales over 550 billion. That's a lot bigger than my uh, stock portfolio. So very big, um, uh, well-resourced uh, companies. And that serve as a critical trading partner, partner, which is defined in the bill to mean that the online platform basically has the ability to cut off third-party services um, from those, those uh, third-party's users. And then the DOJ and FTC sort of rely on these criteria to jointly designate who counts as big tech. Um, and that designation lasts for seven years unless a covered platform successfully gets it removed through a process specified um, in the bill. So one, one thing I wanted to ask folks on the panel, why or why doesn't this approach make sense? I mean, so, so one, one way uh, to go about it would be to uh, specify, okay, these are the types of activities we don't like and just prohibit those activities in general. Um, the other approach is, you know, or, or another approach is what happens in the bill is just to say, okay, these are the types of entities that we don't want engaging in this type of um, uh, behavior. And, and we'll get to the, the prohibitions later um, in terms of what I think Danny was referring to as some are sort of squarely on um, harm to market competition. Some are maybe adjacent things. And so we'll get into that. But the first question in terms of, okay, is this a sensible approach in terms of how the bill says who is covered and who is not? Any thoughts on, on that question from any of you? Sure. So, I mean, I think one thing that's important to say is that this, the bill was written after the House Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee held a series of hearings in 2020 uh, that was expressly targeted at for the four big tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, they wrote a report that, that didn't target any other companies. They didn't talk about Microsoft. They didn't talk about TikTok. It was very much aimed at you know, identifying um, uh, concerns that people surfaced about those uh, four companies. And so this effort has always been target-driven rather than behaviorally driven. So I think they, you know, they, they investigated the four companies. They found behaviors that, that some of you know some of them disagreed with and then they went about writing a bill in this definition in a way that was aimed at those four companies now i think in the process of doing it they do incorporate a couple of other companies most notably microsoft but i do think this whole enterprise of writing bills to capture only certain companies has um, uh, been highly political it's also been prone to cronious lobbying by companies to lobby themselves in or out um, certainly, Microsoft made an attempt to do that last spring when the bill first came out. The first draft included some language, uh, and then it was amended like two or three days later um, to include language that my, I suspect Microsoft may believe helps, would, could help them in the future, although they've said publicly that they think they're covered by it. Most recently, about a month ago, Senator Klobuchar and Senator Glassley introduced a new version of their bill that expressly carves out banks, credit card companies, telcos. Um, we, you know, I believe that was at the behest of some of the Republicans who had heard from some of those industries saying, oh, we don't want to be included in this bill. So the bill doesn't ban behaviors for everyone. It, it takes aim, for example, at vertical integration, but it doesn't prevent Costco from favoring the Kirkland brand or Walmart from favoring, you know, the Sam's brand products. It only prohibits that for those uh, those companies. So I do think that that, um, you know, the, it, it's, it's clearly a target driven approach for some people. That's a virtue of it, right? If you're, if you're focused on it for other people, I think, um, that's a concern. I'm going to, uh, respectfully disagree with Adam's point of view on this. Um, the, the 16th month report was looking at dominance in the tech industry. And if you're going to do that, you're going to look at these big four to five to six tech companies. If I was going to look at dominance in the chicken market, I would also look at, obviously, Tyson's. 
So the, the kind of target-driven approach, I, I think, is not, not exactly the way I would portray it. And indeed, uh, governments around the world have written very similar reports to what our House subcommittee has written, also looking at these big tech companies. I will say, though, I think that one weakness of the um, 16th-month investigation is that they were looking at broad-based platforms and did not, for instance, look at the gaming market, which is one area in which Microsoft is a very, very dominant player, or in the enterprise market, which is another area. And I also think that the, the rumor that Microsoft was trying to be in or out of the bill is, is a little bit founded, especially since they were always within the scope of the bill and indeed have released their own principles quite aligning with um, another antitrust bill that gets in a lot of their services, the Open Apps Market Act, which obviously deals with the gaming app stores that Microsoft controls. Um, so I disagree on those two points. I think that um, this bill is just trying to do what a lot of the governments around the world have been attempting to do in their own ways and fashions, which is describe and define a gatekeeper. What this bill is really aimed at is these big tech companies, these critical trading partners that have the ability to cut off oxygen to small and medium-sized tech companies who are looking just to compete. And indeed, this bill is just going to level the playing field, allowing for what we perceive as the American dream to continue and for someone with the next big idea to succeed instead of having to be acquired uh, by one of the big tech companies or forced to kind of give them a lot of data, give them a portion of the revenue just for the ability to um, compete on their merits and attract new users. Thank you. Darren, Danny, do you have any thoughts on, on this particular issue? Oh, I think actually, Darren, I sorry, Darren, I didn't see Darren the little- Darren has his hand up first, so I'll let him speak first. <laughs> Although I do need to disclose something else. Darren has a black belt in Kung Fu and I don't. Yeah, so if there are any vigorous di uh, disagreements between you two, then I'm putting my bet on Darren, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I never make those assumptions. Um, so we are very comfortable in antitrust with any with screens and, and safe harbors, and we do that all the time. And I, I hate to be the one to say there's nothing new and exciting in this bill. Um, and we've done this historically throughout time, through the ages, with a variety of different interests and parties, but I'm here to say that. Um, so yeah, it targets it targets uh, you know folks of a particular size, and actually, so does the Hart Scott Rodino Act. When we look at how merger enforcement is undertaken, right? Um, we have safe harbors and collaborations among competitors guidelines. Uh, the reason that we that this bill targets certain actors is a recognition that those online platforms have a bunch of power. Um, and we can dispute whether what we mean by that and whether we mean it in the classic antitrust sense or whether we mean it even more broadly. And as Danny pointed out, one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now is whether antitrust law has reached to where it had before or whether the consumer welfare standard, which the Chicago School of Economics brought into the field in the 70s and 80s, has limited it too much. So the, the focus on a particular, you know, particular platforms or particular sizes is, is pretty much how it's always been done. Um, nothing new and exciting there. And it is, makes sense, um, since Danny mentioned my black belt, it makes sense to, uh, to limit people who are of bigger, you know, have greater power um, in their ability to, to engage in, in, uh, in anti-competitive practices. If I were to punch a five-year-old, I think I would probably have a lot of uh, people who, who were upset with me about that because I am bigger and more dominant, right? Whereas if the five-year-old punched me with all their might, it would probably not do much damage. I think this bill takes into recognition the, that you can be a big bad bully in this market. Thank you. So I'll, I'll jump in at this point now that, that Darren has confirmed that in fact he does have a black belt. Um, so there is something, Darren, I think that is fundamentally different than anything we've seen before in antitrust, and that is the stock market valuation being the function of 
somehow being connected to a company's ability to restrict innovation and choice online. That is different. It has nothing to do with market power. It has to do with stock market valuation. We've never seen this before. I'd like to understand better, you know, what the connection is to market cap and then why setting this arbitrary limit. And actually, if it is this limit, so here's one thing that would emerge. If in fact the law was not passed this year, but would be passed next year, as I understand the law, Meta no longer applies um, as, as one of these uh, companies that would be covered because it doesn't hit the stock market uh, cap. So again, what is the issue? Is the issue some kind of exercise of market power that should be unlawful, or is it essentially some kind of big is bad? This is different. Um, you know, what else is different here as opposed to say guidelines? This is not by an agency a guideline. Uh, this, is, this is by legislation. Um, and if it's something that's regulatory, again, so I'm not against regulation. Regulation has to be well thought out. So elsewhere I've written, for example, we need certain guiding principles. So what's the scope of regulation? Here, not so clear. Um, the language is not linked to either what we understand with certain words in case law. You know, is if the regulation isn't clear, right, to what Darren's saying, like, if Chicago school and post-Chicago economic analysis is really fundamentally about tying outcomes to some kind of economic analysis, uh, and here I, I focus on the the economics rather than the legal application of, of what Chicago school means, is the regulation clearly pinned to objective economic outcomes. That That's regulation that tends to help. And it's not just here, it's in any number of other areas. I, there are certain other dirty words outside of antitrust called cost-benefit analysis, but there is a similar theme to cost-benefit analysis. I'm not saying that it we try as best we can to make it objective across a number of factors, right? And what's missing here is that, you know, once you're covered, that's it. It seems to be the end of competitive effects analysis. Um, and to a certain extent, it means certain kinds of blanket rules, sometimes that cover some companies in their business models, but not every company and their business model, even among the larger companies that have different ways of, of uh, value creation uh, and, and monetization. And to a certain extent, um, this is not quite what we know um, empirically. So there are some roughly 800 empirical papers in the platform literature and A journal. So this would be the for example, the UT Dallas list of uh, top journals or, or the FT50 list of top journals. And if you look at those papers, the majority of papers show, again, to the extent that empirical work is very specific to certain factors, the majority of the work, first of all, is not in economics. It's in strategy. It's in information systems. It's in marketing, um, a little bit in finance. Econ isn't more than 15% of these papers. Most of the econ work is fascinating. How do we look at different sides of a platform um, and, 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 and pricing? But that's literally 15% of all papers. But what we know economically and, and empirically is there tends to be more value creation than anti-competitive effect. So regulation should be based on what we know. And actually there's quite a bit we know over the last 20 years of empirical research that didn't get put in. If you look at the House report, they don't mention any empirical work. Certainly, I, look, and I think anytime people have work and they're pushing an agenda, it's like law professors or, or, or a lot of journalists. There's an outcome that they know that they want and they cherry pick examples and it's whatever sort of supports their position and that they push harder than what, what uh, might uh, make their position look weaker. But when we regulate, or even when we're doing a true antitrust type analysis, there's complexity. And we haven't really addressed some of this 
complexity, and sometimes we have unforeseen consequences. And that's what troubles me about the bill. If someone could explain to me the market capitalization, I'm all ears, but I haven't heard a defense of why market capitalization, for example. Danny, do you mind? Uh, I have a couple of follow-up questions. It seems to me that the de definition of gatekeeper or cover platforms under this bill is just an effort by the legislators to kind of define the market of what they're looking at as far as dominance for these activities. And so to me, that seems very helpful. In addition, I, I obviously agree that the bill is in itself a legislative effort and not a agency-driven effort. But the bill does give the FTC and DOJ, in addition to designation of these cover platforms, which is not forever, it's only for seven years, um, does give them the ability to do that designation and also create enforcement guidelines jointly, um, which I think, you know, is, is a nice common sense sort of middle of the road way to advance um, any sort of changes to our market. Um, and then third, you, you mentioned empirical analysis with regards to the 16th month investigation that the, that the House Antitrust Subcommittee um, underwent. I'm not really sure what you mean by empirical. I think you're talking about economic analyses, and I am um, not familiar with those papers. But what they did show is how these gatekeeper companies have um, changed their policies or affected, um, affected changes in the market that led to other companies losing uh, money in the market, losing the ability to compete. For instance, you know, you have the example of Apple stealing the IP for Tile, which Tile um, testified about in, in Congress. You have um, examples of um, both both app stores bullying people on their on their app store uh, frameworks, which is indeed a little bit outside this, but has a lot of overlap with the Open Apps Market Act. And even um, the company that I work for, DuckDuckGo, can show a 10% drop in user acquisition numbers just based on solely on a pop-up that Google um, has been instigating on Chrome. So to me, <clears throat> obviously, these aren't an eco economic analyses of saying like we have regulated here and it led to this, but there was indeed a huge amount of innovation following the, um, following the Microsoft decision that Darren referenced earlier in the late 90s to 2000s that led to the rise of some of the dominant tech companies that we're dealing with today. And so I see that, um, as we made the point several times, enforcement under the Sherman Act has been a little lax, as we all know that's up to some of the political uh, feelings of the moment, whether or not the administration sees this as a priority. But what, we're, what this bill is doing is basically defining a bunch of activities, which the DOJ has enforced against in the past, in addition with the Microsoft case, and saying that we are not going to tolerate this at a certain level of dominance. Here's the market. Here's the kind of gatekeeper power we're talking about, and FTC, DOJ, please craft some guidelines and enforce. And I think that that's a that's a kind of a middle of the road way to go forward. Even though we can quibble about whether we should be following the Chicago School or the Neo Bernstein School of Antitrust Enforcement, um, I still think that these these kinds of rules are trying to to affect changes in the market so that we have a more level playing field and thus will have more innovation um, in the market generally. Anybody else want to jump in on that comment? Thank you all for the for the insights there. One, I, I do have one question from the audience that relates to this question. Um, it's about the the likely. So, what's the likelihood of consensus between the DOJ and the FTC on you know designating which companies fall within um, within the the law, the law's ambit. Um, you know, because FTC and DOJ, the different um, um, bodies, um, and obviously have, in, in some cases, disparate um, incentives and 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 things affecting them. Um, question says: We see occasional disjuncts between the agencies and who gets to review a merger under the um, HSR Act. Um, are there are there any similar dynamics that uh, we we would be worried about here? Um, in the context of this bill. Darren, I think I, I, I don't see think you're, uh, your, your hand is, is the backdrop is a yellow ceiling. And so the hand is also yellow. So I, I keep missing it. I, my bad. Uh, the, the, uh, this was remodeled after the great freeze. So uh, <laughs> look, the, the HSR, and I've been, in, I've been involved in a couple of those battles myself um, when I was at the DOJ. 
Um, and you know, the whole, the whole point is that, we, you know, where we want to take a look at, uh, at some industry and some matter, and there's some overlap and we have to find out who wants to have that. That's a, that's a different policy question than, um, whether we can agree on tech platforms. And I would imagine over, you know, there have been times in, in, in the history of the FTC and the DOJ where they greatly disagree about things. And the DOJ has had a reputation of intervening in FTC cases before <laughs> and filing amicus briefs and, and doing all sorts of fun things to disrupt. Uh, but I think in this, in the current climate uh, with the current appointees, I think you will see um, the DOJ uh, agree with the, you know, maybe three of the commissioners. So I think there'll be some good agreement there. Thank you. Adam, did I cut you off earlier? Were you going to jump no, in? No, I didn't have a lot to add, add on this, but I do think the fact that the reality is that um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of disagreement. I think the fact is uh, most of the, if this bill were to pass, which I hope it doesn't, but if we're to pass, I think you'd see the majority of prosecutions against the four big companies. I don't think you'd see many prosecutions against Microsoft and TikTok because I think most of those will be you know, driven by um, politics. And that's just where most of the political focus is right now. Great, thank you. So oh, let's get into the- One quick- um, oh, oh, sorry. Comment. So this actually, I'm inspired by some other work that Darren has done. Uh, really focusing on uh, politicalization of, of the agencies. And, and Darren, particularly, I, I think of your work in terms of what was passed post-Watergate to review DOJ. Um, remember, this is not self-preferencing. I'm preferencing somebody else on, on the platform, so it's okay. Um, and I think one thing that Darren has noted in his work, and this is a way to get Darren to give me his senses, um, Normally, we had judicial review of the Department of Justice because we were concerned about increased politicalization of enforcement and really were they doing the right thing. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is between the agencies is different than what we've seen before. So I can't think of a time, at least in the last 50 years, where we've had as much executive agency um, influence in the Federal Trade Commission than we have today. That's different. Um, and in terms of outs, so, and certainly this was true when Darren was a staffer at the DOJ. DOJ liked to think of itself in its own little world, both on criminal matters where it just behaved differently than the criminal division and on, on just antitrust enforcement. It just it was like a little island unto itself. So think of the Galapagos, it's developing its own separate beak if it's a finch. We're seeing much more, the neutral term would be integration with main DOJ and with other parts of the executive branch that I don't think we've seen before. Uh, and certainly much more influence of the executive branch into the FTC. Um, some people say, great, we're seeing uniformity. But I'm not sure that this is the kind of political, politicized world that we like. You know, I think of the, the cases that inspired some of Darren's work, like Nixon and ITT. I see this as generally not a happy place. Um, and so when question is asked between DOJ and FTC, what would enforcement look like? I think the answer is political. Um, and... Again, in a world where it was less political and certainly less political than other agencies dealing with economic regulation, say FCC um, or you know uh, the FAA uh, or any number of what are there eight different financial regulators that have either unique overlapping or gaps in enforcement relative to DOJ. Um, I'm not sure that this is a good. Thing and I'll just leave it at that and see if you know Darren, who whose writing has inspired me on this, either thinks differently or or the same. Uh, Katie and then and then Darren, I, I see your hand. I think Katie. Darren was first. Oh, okay. Go ahead, well, Darren. I I I feel a little baited, so. <laughs> <laughs> So look, uh, I'm going to say something that has gotten me in trouble 
often when I give talks? And the answer is, no, no, but the, but the disclaimer is you have tenure, so it's okay. Right. I mean, I could, yeah, I'm making, I can kill students and that's fine. Um, but, uh, uh, so antitrust has always been political. It's always been political. Um, we can go back to, we can go back. Yeah. Uh, Danny mentions the Tunney act and the reason for the Tunney act in the, um, you know, the, the issues, the scandal with ITT, um, it's, it's all in the game. And that's part of the reason why the size of the, the platform matters. Microsoft started to directly influence whether the DOJ's trial budget when I was there, uh, was seeking to do that through its Senator, um, from Washington. Um, We've we've had that happen before. We've had political influence in both both Republican and Democratic administrations. I'm very fond of the airline industry, as Danny knows, and we've seen some massive cases abruptly halted um, due to political influence. So I'm not so I'm not as concerned that this political influence is any different. Uh, I suppose what Danny is suggesting is because of the of uh, the friends the chair keeps <laughs> um, now um, inside the White House that there might be some dialogue taking place, but the FTC is always engaged in dialogue with, with the administration and is always engaged in dialogue with the DOJ. I've certainly been in meetings where we've had interagency cooperation and discussions. Um, and the president gets the point, <laughs> gets to nominate and, uh, uh, um, via, and, and get confirmed. Uh, his nominees for the for the position. So that's not any different than it's always been. So I don't think it's any more political than than any other time in in, in life. And by the way, um, it's it's not like the courts haven't engaged in that politicization. I this is a bad time to mention this, but um, but one recalls when DOJ was uh, was uh, litigating against Microsoft, Collar, Judge Collar Catelli in her uh, settlement order, cited September 11th as a very good reason for the two parties to settle because she was unsure whether the economy was going to collapse, right? That's how dominant Microsoft was at the time. Um, so yeah, I think the, 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 this kind of ties in the two questions. Why are these platforms being targeted because they're so large? And the answer is, Danny's right, they are very large. They have a tremendous impact that no, no one else has in the economy. And that will lead to some politicization, but it's not different than what we've had in any other industry. Yeah, I agree with uh, Darren's points. You know, um, he mentioned the appointments that the president makes to the FTC and other agencies. We saw the politicization of those appointments really um, hang up kind of regular business of the Federal Trade Commission for many, many months while they're waiting on a full bench. Um, so this has always been a weakness of enforcement, um, but we've seen some interesting cases brought recently. I, I know that we've mentioned cases brought by companies against the, the big tech companies, um, but there's also been the case that um, under the Trump administration, the Department of Justice instigated a case against Google. That was obviously a, a politically um, politically motivated decision and one that we weren't sure if the Biden administration would endorse when they came into office. And luckily they did, since that was a great and well-written complaint. And so that's always been a weakness with our system here. I think we like to think that we have these kind of objective arbiters, uh, both in our agencies and in our judiciary, but you know, the judiciary is not a political either. We've seen over the past few years, a number of judges appointed to the federal bench for lifetime appointments that do not see the Chevron doctrine, which is a doctrine of some sort of deference to the agencies as something that's necessary going forward. And so that's, that's um, kind of hanging up our agencies in general to enforce the markets. Um, I think someone also mentioned how we have a number of financial regulators who are bringing quote unquote apolitical cases. Well, we've seen the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, for instance, do some actions recently that are highly political and will likely lead to further degradation of the Chevron doctrine with regards to that agency, as we've seen with the FTC as well. And so I think this is um, this is just a, a wrinkle of the system that we have to proceed with. But, you know, we often compare ourselves to other, other nation states, other groups like the EU. One thing that the U.S. does exceedingly better than the EU is enforce our laws. And so I think 
Um, continuing to have a robust history of enforcement will be important here and allowing for more guidelines for not only the judiciary, but also for the agencies to kind of take actions against these big tech companies that are abusing their gatekeeper power will only work in our interest. Thank you. Um, so we haven't gotten to the substance of the bill yet, um, which I think we will, let's talk about that. Um, so we've talked about sort of this context, who this bill regulates. Now let's talk about what it would do if enacted. Um, there's 10 prohibited behaviors from covered platforms. Um, several of you in your comments have mentioned the self-preferencing provision. That's that's, I think, one of the most talked about. There's been a lot of buzz recently um, about um, how some of the provisions might affect content moderation by these platforms. Um, there was an op-ed from several prominent law professors in the Washington Post saying, you know, content moderation would um, um, be very difficult for these platforms. There was a response in, in Wired um, saying, you know, that's, that's actually not a, a credible concern. So I just want to open it up to the panelists, which of these, we're not going to be able to cover all of them, but there are 10 prohibitions um, for covered platforms. Which of them do you think are the most important um, and, and why? So um, Danny mentioned earlier in this discussion that there's a lot of sort of ancillary concerns that surround or touch on antitrust, but are not exactly antitrust concerns. And content moderation is one of them. So this bill does not at all affect Section 230. It's just requiring the, the non-discriminatory uh, enforcement of uh, platforms' terms of service against users, business users, I should note, which is not the same thing as an individual user. Um, and so it will not touch content moderation or Section 230 in this sense. But that is another underlying concern, just like privacy and security, that has not been addressed in the past 20 to 30 years of legislation and is being brought up again because there are other ills in this market that we have not fixed. Um, regarding which section I think is most important, one of my personal favorites is 3A4, which uh, prohibits uh, gatekeepers from um, barring groups from interoperating with services on their platforms. That's particularly exciting to me because for a long time, our computers, our desktop computers, our laptops have been highly interoperable, but more and more our new devices like phones, smart speakers, et cetera, lack that interoperability. And that, that is really hampering the kind of choices that consumers have in the market and the kind of choices that consumers are making on their own. Another one that works very closely with that is the bar against companies putting barriers in place for users to change their default services. I really see those two as working together to allow people to be more innovative with the services that they're using on their, their phones and devices, and also kind of use these devices more to their own wills. We own the phone that's in our pocket. It's a very, very uh, personal device that's with us all day long, tracking us as we go but yet we're not allowed to kind of download whatever software we want, but we can do that on a laptop. One of the things that this bill would do along with the Open Apps Market Act is really break open that system and also allow for uh, other companies like Sonos, et cetera, to interoperate with the big tech company services in a way that's, that's extremely helpful. And I, for one, can't wait for a day when I can use a pair of wireless headphones and have it pop up immediately on my phone without it being a product that was bought from the phone manufacturer. That's the kind of interoperability that I think we all want and has been barred purely because the big tech companies have been permitted to abuse their status in the market. Thank you. Uh, I think, Adam, I see your hand. I think the, the way to think about what this bill does fundamentally is, is prohibit the big tech services from vertically integrating products. The key provisions there are section 3A1, which prohibits self-preferencing, and the provision 3A2, which prohibits services from uh, limiting any other competitor's services either. And so the way I like to think about it is, if you go buy a car today, that car comes with windshield wipers, car radio, seat warmers, all included. And that's to the convenience of the consumer. Um, the, if this bill were to be applied to the car industry, the prohibition on self-preferencing would prohibit the car manufacturer from including any of those um, services, those features, um, because doing so would be disadvantageous to the aftermarket sellers of car radios and windshield wipers and seat warmers. Again, beneficial 
for those suppliers. I completely understand why many suppliers um, like this bill because it does benefit them. But uh, for the consumer who likes the convenience of the vertically integrated product, this, um, this will be a negative. The second part though, the, the uh, section two, three, eight, two limiting, uh, prohibiting big ser services from limiting any else services, I think leads a lot of people um, to conclude, Randy Picker has a very good, had a very good post on this recently, um, that the likely, one likely scenario is that you have nothing pre-installed on a new iPhone or a Google search result, or that you end up with endless ballot screens, right? Um, Europe has tried to implement these ballot screens uh, in the Microsoft case, in the Google shopping case, and there's all these negotiations about who should be included in the ballot screen. And so that you imagine a scenario where you do a Google search and then you can say, okay, well, who do you want to be your map provider? And who do you want to be your shopping search provider? Again, for those competing services of local search, say Yelp, for example, that's a plus, that's a benefit that they want. And, um, and but again, for the consumer who just wants things to work um, seamlessly, uh, I think that would be an, uh, an inconvenience. And also, you know, it, Consumers today don't have any barriers to reaching uh, competing services like Yelp. They're just, you know, just navigating to that the competing website or app. But the third thing I just want to highlight again is Section 3A3, which prohibits the big tech services from discriminating against what's called similarly situated business users. And this is the provision that many groups, Free Press, Center for Democracy and Technology, and a number of academics um, have highlighted as having an, an impact on content moderation. That provision, I think, was there to help services like Spotify and Epic Games who have their own apps, who feel that the platforms have um, hurt their apps. But the way that the, uh, this, this similarly situated business users language is written, I think has been identified by many of these experts as also threatening, for example, Apple's ability to keep the Parler app off their service or AWS um, you know, to keep Parler off their service uh, or Facebook's ability to keep you know, Alex Jones Infowars off their service. And this shows, I think, the perils of attacking discrimination, right? Because sometimes we want services to discriminate. We don't, most people don't want um, Apple or AWS to be required to, uh, to carry Parler, right? Or hate apps. And I don't think, I think the proponents of the bill, the sponsors have kind of just denied this. And frankly, they've been pretty explicit. They, the Democrats who've been for this, like Senator Klobuchar have said that they will not fix this because doing so will drive away the Republican co-sponsors of this bill, like Senator Grassley, uh, him, Congressman Buck, Senator Cruz have all publicly said that one of the reasons they like this bill is because they think it will limit the ability of the big platforms to engage in content moderation. We can debate the, we can debate the specifics, but this is a motivator for the Republicans who are supporting the bill. And so far, the Democratic sponsors of it have been just sort of in denial of that fact, where they don't want to disrupt what they sort of devalue as this bipartisan agreement. What about the, um, what Katie references, the uh, Communications Decency Act, Section 230, um, in terms of content moderation, uh, because it does provide immunity uh, for you know, platforms um, and removal of content. And, and this bill, you know, um, talks about um, material market harm. So it seems to be the focus is you've got to, you know, your, your sort of enforcement of these terms of service in a discriminatory manner also have to result in a material market harm. Does that provide sort of a cover for um, the platforms in terms of, um, you know, removing misinformation or other types of objectionable content? I, I really don't think it does. Um, the fact is the, the, the bill's term material harm to competition is a essentially new term. It's I think um, written deliberately to be a prospective um, alternative to the consumer welfare standard. And it's not defined. And the fact is I think there's ample room under this bill for a parlor to find a um, conservative um, a, a state attorneys general to file a case against Apple or AWS saying that their you know, kicking parlor off of the app store AWS hosting was, um, was in fact an attempt to snuff out a nascent competitor. I'm sure that that argument will be made. And there's nothing really in this bill that pro prohibits that. And in fact, the language, um, I think as many, you know, as many people, many academics um, and again, organizations have 
have expressed a concern about. I think the only reason this hasn't been changed, frankly, is because if, if Senator Klobuchar changes this, she loses the Republicans who are on the bill. And that's not something she wants to do. But it is a problem for uh, attracting more Democratic support for the bill. Thank you. And so, I mean, going back to both Katie and Adam's earlier comment, I mean, both of you sort of articulated a different type of consumer, right, um, in terms of how this bill might impact one or the other. On the one hand, I think Katie's consumer is one who wants um, to make, you know, have more choices or make choices about which app to use, how to use it, what to put on their phone, their devices. Adam's uh, I mean, one of the consumers you are, or the sort of the prototype you articulated, someone who benefits from the curation of uh, the, these 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 tech companies provide in terms of the devices and services. Um, and so, is there like I guess what I'm wondering is is there a reconciliation um, to be made between the, those two sort of um, prototypes uh, of of consumers? I think so. I think for a long time, you know, uh, big tech companies have been acting rather paternalistically saying, here, we're going to present you with the best options. Don't worry about whatever is in the market. That might have been more appropriate when we were all kind of new to having these very smart computers in our pocket following us around all the time. But I no longer think that that's appropriate. And indeed, the sort of choices that um, Adam mentioned, the ballot boxes of choice screens, that's not new either. We, we had that as part as an ordered remedy in the Microsoft case in the 90s to 2000s to just present users with an easy uh, choice screen to change their browser, their default browser to another. These kinds of choices have been presented for a long time on laptops and more traditional computers. But now that we have a tinier screen with a more controlled ecosystem, these choices have been kind of um, divorced from consumer control. And indeed, companies have been able to say, look, we know better than you. We're going to put these apps on the phone. You're going to really like them. And they've benefited from network effects and thus had really successful services. And I'm not denying that they're useful, but the market has caught up and there are other, other options uh, available to users and indeed options that are able to compete on privacy. Of course, I work for a company that is an internet privacy company that is working to try to uh, make privacy simple and easy for users. And so allowing users to easily switch from a very, uh, you know, surveillance tech uh, browser like Chrome to another browser that's more privacy protective like DuckDuckGo, Brave, or, or Mozilla's Firefox should be easy for the user. But the, uh, big tech companies have put in multiple barriers to prevent users from making that easy switch. Um, so I think that it's time for us now to put control back where it belongs in the user's hands. And uh, there's been a lot of fear mongering about users being able to download software on their devices, but we've been able to do that for a long time on computers. I don't see why the discussion is so different when we're talking about our new smart devices, like our phones or speakers. Great, thank you. Uh, Darren, I see you. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna tell you a story. It's gonna be a very short one. Um, and the story is, that uh, economists do not like regulation. And they have convinced everyone that regulation is bad because we'll always make things worse through regulation um, than through market competition, despite the fact that we always have some rules to the game. What they don't tell you is we've done this with many different industries over time. If you look at electricity markets, Electricity markets are now a thing today because we have non-discriminatory access to transmission. Um, um, we, have, we, have, we have a regulator who oversees that, and that's something the tech companies certainly do not want. And we do so because electricity companies will self-preference their generation in their transmission because they are vertically integrated. When confronted with this, they said, well, golly, if we could have these competitive generation units, the system will melt, it will blow up, bad things will happen, right? You won't get two-day delivery of electricity. Um, so those, those kinds of concerns followed in electricity, natural gas. We've had the similar issues with railroads. We've had the same similar issues with airlines um, in terms of these, um, what, antitrust people might call essential facilities. Um, 
And so the remedy here is one that's been, is age old. Instead of having regulators assure that those, those, uh, those platforms are non-discriminatory and open access, we have a statute. Um, and yeah, the standard isn't consumer welfare standard, but neither are they in these other markets, right? Market manipulation was one standard. Just and reasonable on the public interest was a standard. So these are not new problems. And the whole notion that this is some exceptionalism um, and this is something brand new that you know has never been done before is false. Um, and in every single instance, people have said that these, you know, you know, if you if you bias against self-preferencing, the system will fall apart. That defense is not new either. These are old remedies. These are regulatory remedies that have been tried and true and work. I know that we're basically out of time, but I do want to quickly say two things. Number one digital platforms are not essential facilities. They, they operate differently. Uh, but I do want to throw in one other part of the, into the mix of what it, you know, what part of the legislation uh, is interesting from my perspective. Number one, I did a set of PowerPoint slides for the Progressive Policy Institute outlining some of my concerns. Uh, it's PowerPoint, so it's easier to look at than an actual piece of writing. So that is my self-preferencing, sorry about that. But I actually wanna focus on something else, which is the language of the affirmative defense is if the defendant establishes that the conduct has not resulted in and would not result in material harm to competition, that would not language puts the burden on the defendant to prove that wouldn't happen in the future for seven of the 10 different conducts. That includes, as Katie suggested, interoperability, data sharing, ban on conditioning access or preferred status or placement. Um, you know, to me, that destroys Prime's two-day delivery commitment if Amazon can ensure that non-users of its fulfillment services can meet the commitment and a ban on treating products and services or lines of business cover platforms operate more favorably relative to the other business unit. That's the other language from the text in search results. Um, that to me is also troubling as to what the affirmative defense means. Again, we don't know, Darren, what material harm to competition means. Um, I'm concerned about that. It's not a standard in antitrust case law. Um, and I'm just troubled at that. I know we're, we're basically out of time, but I, I do want um, to just leave you with, with those thoughts specifically. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, and we, we unfortunately, we don't have, uh, maybe fortunately for you, you all, but we, we don't have um, three hours to sort of delve into um, the rest of this. There's a, there's a ton there. Um, there's, as, as we were just mentioning, the, the, the first three prohibitions include this, this term, um, a requirement of material harm to, to competition. The following seven do not, although it is a defense to any of those seven to say, well, for, for you know, one of these big tech companies to say, well, there was no material harm to competition. Um, but it's right, we don't have a definition of it in the bill. Um, it may be something that if this bill passes will will almost certainly be litigated and sort of defined um, over over time. I just want to thank all of you for uh, joining today and taking time out of your very busy schedules, some of you from vacation um, to contribute your insights uh, to this discussion. I think it's a really important one and you all have uh, contributed some really valuable insights I think um, for our listeners so, um, thank you very much, um, and stay tuned for, for more um, from BYU Law School on, on this topic as we uh, hold additional events and, and webinars on um, the future of antitrust and, and where competition law and policy is going. So thank you very much, um, and until next time.